Well, we're going to be looking a little bit more at Hebrews chapter 11, but we want to start in Genesis this morning. And so if you can get back to Genesis chapter 6, we'll be reading a few texts there in a minute just to kind of get some background. In 1647, Archbishop James Usher began his life work, the work that he became most famous for, called the Annals of the World. And what he decided to do is... He decided to try and write a chronology of the entire history of the world up until that time, starting with creation. And uh, he did lots of research. He learned different languages so he could read Persian history and Greek history and all of these things. He was just this a very diligent student. And, and what was unique about his history is that he believed the Bible implicitly. So the Bible was his infallible history source and all the other ones he uh, made submit to the scripture. And uh, historians have been kind of amazed at what he was able to accomplish. For instance, he said that Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C. and Julius Caesar died in 44 B.C. And these are dates that are still held to by modern scholars today. Extrapolating backwards, Usher dated the creation as occurring at 404 B.C. and the worldwide flood at 2349. Usher wrote on the day, 10th day of the second month of this year, Sunday, November 30th. He even got it down to like the day, in some cases, even the hour. I don't know how he got that, but he he got it. Uh, God commanded Noah that in uh, that week he should prepare to enter the ark. Meanwhile, the world totally devoid of all fear, sad eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In the 600th year of the life of Noah on the 17th day of the second month, Sunday, December 7th, he, together with his children and the living creatures of all kind, entered the ark. God sent rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days, end quote. Well, no one knows the exact date of the flood or even the year. Uh, there is one thing we do know for certain, that it happened, and it happened just as the scriptures say. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5, and through seven, we read this. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, it will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky. I'm sorry that I have made them. And then if you look down to chapter six, verse 11, we continue reading. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of the, of God. The earth was filled with violence and God looked on the earth and behold, it was a, a corrupt uh, for flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And so these two texts give us the reason why God sent the flood upon the earth. There was great corruption and wickedness so that God then decided that he would destroy the earth. 
We see in the, uh, a few verses later, in verses 14 and following, God's solution to the problem of the wickedness that was on the earth. He said, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. Its length, the ark, will be 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window in the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door in the ark and the side of it. You shall make it with the lower and second and third decks. Behold, I am, I am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Look down at chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his uh, uh, and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. And then look down in verse 17 of chapter 7. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the arks that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more on the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere were under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All the flesh that moved in the earth perished, the birds and the cattle and the beasts and every swarming thing that swarms in the earth and all mankind and all that was on dry land and all whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. So the flood then caused these massive tectonic plate shifts, uh, the formation of the continents, huge uh, mountain ranges, you know, jetted up with explosive forth from the weight of the the, the waters on the face of the earth. Uh, huge quantities of vegetation were swept away by the water and covered with sediment, which uh, made the coal and oil deposits we rely on today. The Grand Canyon was carved out in a matter of days not hundreds, thousands, or millenniums of years. During all of this, there is one man who lived by faith through it all, who witnessed it all, who was a key instrument in all, and that man was Noah. And so if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 is the text we're going to focus on today. Noah is the third individual mentioned in the great hall of faith found in Hebrews 11. And this is what we read. And starting in verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to to faith. Now from verse 7, what I want to do is just give you three um, ways Noah is our example so that you can follow in his footsteps and glorify God in your life. And the first is, like everybody else in this chapter, Noah lived by faith. I mean, that is the general statement. The details are following, but look at verse 7. It says, by faith. This is how everybody in the chapter is listed. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not seen and just stop there. All the people in Hebrews 11 started out believing before doing. Abel worshiped God by faith. Enoch walked with God by faith and Noah persevered in obedience by faith. Now consider that when God told Noah he was going to destroy the world with the flood, no one had ever seen a flood before. And so 
Noah was going out in some rather uncharted territory. Noah believed God's word by faith and then he acted upon it. And, you know, I think it's similar in the world today. God tells us a lot of pretty amazing things, doesn't he, that no one's ever seen. There will be a a change in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's pretty amazing. I've never seen that. I've never experienced that. And during that time, there will be great tribulation following such as not occurred since the beginning of the world. And the Antichrist, this man who is empowered by Satan, will rise and make a treaty with Israel for seven years. In the middle of the week, he will commit the abomination of desolation in the temple, which doesn't even exist right now. He will persecute Christians and Jews. Two witnesses will rise up. They will be able to command fire to consume people. They will be able to order up plagues and famines. They will be killed in the sight of all and ascend in the heaven in the sight of all. The earth will be decimated with earthquakes and giant hailstones and meteorites and plagues and wars. And the son of man will appear with great glory. The heavens, all the invisible realms, which we can't see now will all of a sudden be displayed and you'll be able to see Christ and all the angels and all the saints of the ages coming back in great glory. And thus the scriptures go on and on telling us that all these things are going to happen and we believe it by faith because we've never experienced it. We've never seen it. And the world, of course, scoffs and ridicules and... They refuse to believe. You've got to be kidding. You don't actually believe that stuff, do you? Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon titled God, The God-Minded Men, said, Believers have no need to consult with flesh and blood. There is Noah, for instance. He is commanded by God to build an ark of gopher wood, an ark large enough to hold himself and his family and some of all the beasts and birds and creeping things that creep on the face of the earth. Was it not an absurd idea to build a huge ark upon dry land? Yet Noah did not consult with any of the people who were then living. But we read, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, end quote. He didn't go around and say, uh, what do you guys think? You know, let's call a town meeting. I've God's talked to me. Do you, do you think this flood's really going to happen? Do you think I should really go through with this ark building project? No. And the lesson for us, I think, is pretty clear and simple. You believe God and you live by faith. You take, you have to decide, you're going to take your stand with the educated, you know, philosophers and university professors of the day or God. You're going to take your stand with the scientists who know for certain, though they're, what they know for certain is always changing, that what they believe is absolute truth, though they didn't believe it last year. You're going to take their stand with the scientists or God. You, you're going to align yourself with the great scoffers of the age like Richard Dawkins or not. You align yourself with God or men. And that's how it is. Men lived a long time back then. And you can be sure that there were some pretty smart guys. You can imagine if your brain functioned, you know, for 900 years, you can imagine 
how much knowledge you would accumulate. And I'm sure there were some very, you know, wise sages at the time who came up to Noah and said, Now, Noah, what you're doing here is pretty ridiculous. We've talked about it. And we just want you to know we think you're wasting your time. We don't think God spoke to you. And we don't think there's going to be a flood, whatever that is. We don't think a whole bunch of water is going to fall from the sky. It's never happened before. And we think you're just wasting your time. We're your friends. And, uh, you know, we just, we know you're not crazy. At least you don't seem to be crazy. But in this one area, you kind of look that way. And why would they say that? Because all their learning, they couldn't experience what can only be experienced by faith in the word of God. But Noah persevered in obedient faith. Secondly, Noah feared God by faith. Look at verse seven. Again, it says by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Notice that when God spoke to Noah about the judgment to come in the flood, he feared God. That's what this word reverence means. It's a holy fear or terror where you get scared. He was scared about the judgment to come. I mean, you know, it's scary, isn't it? You're going to destroy the whole world. I live in the world. My family lives in the world. All my friends live in the world. He was scared. And this fear of God's word then produced in him actions in accordance with that fear produced by God's word. Turn over to Psalm 19. I just want to show you something here. Psalm 19, which uh, to many of you is pretty familiar. It's uh, one of the Psalms about the word of God. There's Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, both which are about the word of God. And in verses seven through nine, David gives kind of a synonym for the word of God. And then he gives a, a, a uh, kind of quality. And then he describes an effect of God's word. Look at verse seven, where David writes the law of the Lord. There's the synonym is perfect. There's the quality restoring the soul. That's what it does. The test the Lord, there's the synonym, is sure, the quality, making wise the simple, that's what it does. The precepts of the Lord, there's the synonym, are right, there's the quality, rejoice in the heart, that's what it does. The commandments of the Lord, there is the synonym, is pure, there's the quality, enlightening the eyes, there's what it does. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is the synonym. Now, why would David use fear as a synonym for the word of God? Because the word of God, when it is believed by faith, makes one fearful. Because you believe that judgment is coming. You believe that hell exists. You believe that God is a consuming fire and the whirlwind and storm is his way. You know, there's this whole idea today and it's really unhealthy. People kind of just kind of treat God as a chum, a buddy, like a teddy bear, jump into his lap. Isaiah 64 verses one through five 
He writes, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known and your adv- to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. You know, when Moses saw God in the burning bush, he didn't go, hey, bud. I mean, he was licking the dust. When you read about the prophets who had a vision from God or some sort of theophany or Christophany, some sort of appearance, what did they do? Well, one of two things, they either fell down like dead men. In other words, they fainted from fear or they got exceedingly scared. Because God is awesome. The heavens and the highest of heavens cannot contain him. And he is nobody to be trifled with. And when we look at this and we look at God's word, when God speaks to you and says judgment is coming, it should scare you. If you believe it. If you don't know Jesus Christ, it should cause you to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that what's the message? Flee from the wrath to come is what John the Baptist preached. Why? Wrath is coming. If you believe that, run from it. You know, you're out in the, in the hills and you're hiking along and all of a sudden you look up the trail and here comes a mountain lion. What do you do? Go back. Hide. Run the other way. Why? Because you are fearful. You don't want to get hurt. The belief that that animal's coming down makes you act. That's normal. And if you do know Jesus Christ, it should cause you to obey God's word. To evangelize the lost. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul says. We keep ourselves unstained by the world. And this is just a sampling. Why? Because the fear of God makes us serious, sober, and makes us want to obey now if you're thinking there well listen i'm a believer i've passed out of judgment to life let me remind you god has a big paddle and he disciplines every son whom he receives the wicked are those who have no fear of god before their eyes so the question is do you fear god do you fear judgment do you fear the consequences of your sin? You know, I have people to ask me sometimes, you know, Pastor Hughes, I am just so struggling with this sin or that sin, and I just can't seem to stop. I mean, what do you do? I mean, how do you avoid immorality? How do you, you know, do that? One of the things is I just stop. I just think about it. What would happen if I fell into immorality? What would happen to my family, my marriage, my children, my ministry? the name of Christ to all those people who know me and know that I'm a Christian, know that I've told them not to commit immorality. I mean, do you see that just the massive consequence of sin? That scares me. So I don't go there by God's grace. That's why the scriptures say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. The fear of the Lord is to abstain from evil. Proverbs has a whole list of the fear of the Lord is, and it tells you, so we are to fear Lord, the Lord like Noah did. Third, we are to obey God by faith. 
Third thing, obey God by faith. It's apparent that many Christians are mistaken about grace and faith today. It is, it's pretty disturbing to me. I have people come up to me rebuking me that I don't understand what grace is. Because their idea of grace is, grace is really God's decision to be kind to them no matter what they do, no matter how much they sin, and just that God is just fine because there's just this huge supply of never-ending grace and they can just rebel and, and that's okay. And that faith to them is often understood as just a mental assent to certain facts that you can just take it, you know, and say, yeah, I believe in it. I don't have to change your life. I mean, you don't have to like do anything. It's by faith. It's not by works. It's by faith. No works. No works. And, you know, if you come up to them and say, you know what? You need to be. Listen, you are a legalist. You don't have a clue about grace and faith. You're you're trying to bring me under the curse of the law. And then they kind of dismiss any admonitions or rebukes that you have because, you know what, you're really a, a heretic. You're a legalist. And if you really understood grace, you would leave me alone in my rebellion against God. These people aren't clinging to saving grace or faith they are deceived because they think they can sin with just absolute impunity they fail to realize that god's grace comes in many packages and many forms like when i say grace what comes to your mind anything is it just like a power a concept Yes, God's grace does come in some invisible things that are given to us, like, you know, a changed life. God does that by grace. But he also gives us very many tangible things by grace, like your Bible is a gift of God's grace. Spiritual gifts are a gift of God's grace. Access to God in prayer is a gift of grace. Now, just knowing those things isn't enough. The Bible, here's the Bible. God is gracious to you, gives you the Bible, read it. Here's a spiritual gift I give to you at salvation, use it. Here's access to me in prayer, pray. That's what God wants. He doesn't want us to just say, well, I got a Bible, I don't read it, but it's grace. I've got a spiritual gift, but I don't use it because it's grace. I've got access to God in prayer. I don't pray because it's grace. It's not grace if you don't implement. It's rebellion. Because grace is given to us for the very purpose of obeying God. Listen to how Paul speaks to Titus. This is Titus 2 verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared telling us to let go and let God. Is that what it says? No, it says instructing us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and righteously and justly in the present age, looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every law, deed and to purify 
for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's grace. Grace leads to zealous good deeds. That's what grace does. It moves you to action like Noah was moved to action. He was saved by grace through faith and was moved. Built a huge ark. And faith is not merely a a mental assent to certain truths. Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross, rose again, third day. I believe if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven. I believe in him, therefore I'm going to heaven. Now there are false faiths and true faiths, and we've talked about those last week. Faith like grace produces action in accordance with the word of God. Noah wouldn't be in Hebrews 11 if he didn't act in faith, right? If he didn't build the ark, he wouldn't be in the chapter. He'd be dead. Paul, in the beginning of the book of Romans, says in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 that he writes to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Think about that. I mean, Paul is the champion of justification by faith without works, right? But the very premise statement of the book is, I'm writing you so you will obey. He ends the book in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, and says the gospel, which has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. Now, he's the champion of justification by faith apart from works. So why does he keep talking about obedience? Because once you are saved by grace through faith apart from works, you then obey if you have that true saving faith. It moves you to obey. James says the same thing, doesn't he? James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Listen to this. He says in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. Or verse 17, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Or verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And if you didn't get those first instances, he says in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And that is crystal clear. If you don't have a faith that moves you to action, you don't have saving faith because that's the only kind that saves anybody. So let's look at Noah a little bit closer because this guy acted. This guy went for it and he went for it in a serious way. How is Noah's faith demonstrated in this persevering obedience? First, of six attributes. First, Noah obeyed with no precedent. We alluded to this earlier. And verse 7 says he prepared an ark. No one ever built an ark before. He couldn't go down and get plans. Giant ark plans. <laughs> he couldn't get on the internet and look at, yeah, looking for giant ark details. No, man, this was uncharted faith territory. This was kind of like Star Trek, man. He was going where no man had gone before. He was going the farther, the, the, the outer reaches of faith here. God says, I want you to build a gigantic boat. 
on dry land with no large bodies of water around. You've got to be kidding me. Why? I'm sending a flood on the earth. Okay. According to Genesis 6.15, the ark was 300 cubits long. And there's two different kinds of cubits. There is what is called the Egyptian royal cubit, which is 20.65 inches long. And then there is the Hebrew cubit, which is about 18 inches long. And the question is, which one is being used? The problem is there was no Hebrews back then in Noah's day. So some people have said it's probably the Egyptian cubic, 20.65 inches long, because we know from Egyptian archaeology that the, this royal cubit was being used back almost 2,800 years. And so they say, see, then that, that seems to be um, what, what the case was. The problem is, is, is the, you know, the book is written in Hebrew, so I don't know. Um, but anyways, the ark was about 450 feet long. Now, the, an NFL football field is 360 feet long from end zone to end zone. So think about that. One and a half football fields long, about 80 feet. If you go out the front door, it's about 80 feet to the wall out there and 50 feet high, uh, which is about the average height of a four-story building. This thing was huge. 1.4 million cubic feet volume. 14,000 tons of gopher wood. That's a lot of gophers. I don't know how they get all those gophers into wood, but it's huge. You could put inside of it 522 railroad boxcars. Or you could... You could put into it 125,000 sheep-sized animals. And keep in mind that only 15% of all animals are over or bigger than a sheep. And also keep in mind that if you're bringing an animal on and you have to say, well, should we bring a full-grown Tyrannosaurus Rex on board or a small baby one? You can choose to bring a baby one. It's okay. Today, there are only 18,000 species, and they figure that maybe 20,000 species have gone extinct for a grand total of 38,000 species. You double that number because you want a male and female, it gives you 76,000 animals, 85% of which are smaller than sheep. And then there's plenty of room for Noah and the food. And they don't really need to take water because then they got water. (laughs) Lots of water. I mean, they probably just, you know, put a little spigot in the side, just open it up. And then it came. (laughs) Plenty of water. Now, imagine how long it would take for you to build something like that. Imagine saying, okay, um, all right, let's plan this. Okay, the first thing we need to do is get a flat spot. That's 450 feet long by 80 feet wide. It's like an airstrip. That's just for beginners. That's just to to start it. I mean, he'd have to have his own lumber yard. And think of all the trees. You have to go out in the forest and cut them down and, and chop off the limbs and drag them in and mill them and stack them and the pegs and all of that stuff. I mean, how many thousands of gallons of pitch? 
Would you need to cover something 450 feet long, 80 feet wide, and 50 feet tall? That is a lot of pitch. It was a huge, huge undertaking. And and Noah had to bear the brunt of this all himself. I mean, he this was his expense. You know, no MasterCard fell down from the sky. Cash didn't fall down in bundles. He had to do this. And I'm sure while he was... Re- preaching repentance to everybody who came within earshot that they didn't want to help him. So it was Noah and his family going and building this huge thing. And they thought he was crazy. He was a first class lunatic. No one had ever seen it rain before. Rain? What's that? It's when water falls down from the sky. What? You are nuts. Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 says, Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. They would get up, you know, maybe in the morning, and everything just was kind of watered. What's this whole rain thing? What's this whole flood thing? We've never seen it flood before. Now, what is that now? What happens? Is that when the misters get stuck? You know, I use misters at my house because that's the pre-flood sprinkler system of choice. (laughs) It's what God did. And so that's why I do that. It works good. And that's all they were used to. There was no, there was no rain falling. Why, why is that? Well, um, we don't know this for certain and you know, I'm just guessing, but there's good reason to believe that there was a very thick vapor barrier around the whole earth, like a water canopy. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, there's a lot of good reasons to believe that. One reason is, is this would explain why there was a greenhouse effect over the whole earth. The whole earth was warm. There wasn't a north and south pole. You say, well, how do you know that? Because if you go to the north and south pole, there's tropical forests under there. Under the north and south pole. Did you know that? Well, they don't like to mention it because they they don't know what to say. Have you ever heard this one? We think that maybe a huge meteorite hit the earth and knocked it off its axis and rotated it so that the equator zone kind of became the north and south pole. Well, that's a nice theory, but where's the crater? Oh, we haven't found one. Well, you'd think if it knocked the earth off its axis, we'd find it. It's not there because it never happened. Seth Bornstein, Associated Press science writer, wrote May 31st, 2006, quote, scientists have found what might have been an ideal ancient vacation hotspot with a 74 degree Fahrenheit average temperature, alligator ancestors and palm trees. It's smack in the middle of the Arctic, end quote. Commenting about that, Mark Pagani, a Yale geology professor, said, quote, it was probably a tropical paradise, end quote. How did that tropical paradise get under there? Because the whole earth was a tropical paradise because of this vapor barrier. Not only that, another reason to believe it is it would explain the carbon-14 issue. You've heard of carbon-14 dating, right? Carbon-14 is something that comes from the sun. It enters into the atmosphere and it gets inside of plants. Then what happens is 
plant-eating animals eat the plants and they get carbon-14 in them. And flesh-eating animals eat the animals that eat the plants and get carbon-14 in them. So everything gets carbon-14 in it. Then what happens is once the animal dies, they quit ingesting carbon-14. And what happens is you can measure it and you can tell after a time because carbon-14 kind of wears out like a battery and over the course of time it becomes less and less strong and so you can extrapolate backwards assuming you know how much was there at the beginning which no one ever does and assuming that carbon-14 has always entered the atmosphere at the same rate but if there was a vapor barrier what would happen you would go back to the flood and after that there would hardly be any carbon 14 because it would be strained out through this vapor barrier and wouldn't enter in so all the ages would apparently spike way up huh interesting not only that it would help explain things like genesis 7 chapter 7 verse 11 which says of the flood all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the flood gates of the sky were open in other words when the flood happened it wasn't just rain falling from heaven what happened was is god took all of this subterranean water and it just burst up from the ground then he condensed this vapor barrier or this whatever it was. And it says the floodgates fell down. Huge torrential rains just come down in the earth and it's boiling up. And that's what just causes the huge catastrophe um, of the flood. All the vegetation, of course, would be swept away and, and all of these deposits would be found, which is exactly what we find all over the earth. There was a worldwide flood. And all these things had no precedent but Noah believed it never happened before Noah believed it. It took him a long time to obey God in this regard without any precedent. Think about that ever before. And he did it anyways. Secondly, Noah obeyed in the midst of unbelief. How do we know that? Look at verse seven. It says, talks about the salvation of his household. That's all. Seven others besides himself. Everybody else didn't believe. No one else got in the ark. I mean, it's not like they didn't notice the ark being built. Hello? It was like a wooden shopping mall. It's not that they couldn't hear him hammering and sawing and chiseling and chopping for year after year, decade after decade. It's not that Noah failed to preach to them as whenever they came by, they refused to believe there was going to be a flood. And so they didn't help and they didn't get in the ark. I mean, look at that lunatic. He's building a huge boat. You know, consider how the masses think about Christianity today. What do they really think about Christianity I mean, let's just say you, you go to any university, stand up in cla- class and say, you know, I believe God created the earth in six days, a few thousand years ago. And uh, I think there's a hell and people are going to end up in hell if they don't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they just scoff at these things. I mean, they, they don't have any problem believing in heaven if they die, but they have a problem with hell. And they drive around and they see church buildings all over the place. And those church buildings are like arcs. Monuments to their unbelief. 
And they hear coworkers talking about Christianity. And they hear God talked about at weddings and funerals and when they accidentally turn the dial the wrong way on their radio. They're hearing it. But they don't want to hear about the bloody cross. They don't want to hear about the wrath of God. They don't want to hear about judgment coming. They don't want to hear about their need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear about it. It's the same as it was in Noah's time. And so they ignore all of this evidence, just like they ignored the ark. And they won't believe. Third, Noah's obedience was for the long haul. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 5, let me just show you a couple texts here. This is kind of fun. Genesis chapter 5. Sometimes you'll hear people say that it took him 120 years to build the ark, but uh, that comes from a text where he says in, I think, chapter 7, that man will live 120 years, but it doesn't say that's how long it took to build the ark. But turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 32. Now I want to show you this. Noah was 500 years, Genesis 5, 32. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it seems they were triplets. All were born when he was 500 years old. It could have been there was some twins. And then after that, one was born like, you know, twins were born right after he became 500. And then his wife got immediately pregnant and had one more, you know, right um, after that. But that is highly unlikely if she was nursing them, which she probably was since there was no Similac back then. Genesis 7, 6 says, if you look over there, Genesis chapter 7, verse 6. Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. If you look over in Genesis chapter 9, at the very end of the chapter, verses 28 and 29, Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now we have what we need to make some calculation. Noah was 500 years old when he gave birth to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God told him to build the ark then. He was then 600 years old when the flood came upon the earth. He lived 350 years after the flood, um, which tells us that you know, he lived a total of, the text says, 950 years. Well, if you subtract the 500 years and 350 years, it leaves you 100 years in between when he got the command and the flood came. And so he built the ark somewhere in between that 100-year span. We don't know if he took up that whole 100 years or not, but I imagine that he probably got on it right away. And as soon as it was finished, I think he got in it. So I think it pretty much took him the whole 100 years, but we don't know for certain. Now, it takes a lot of faith to go into a 100-year shipbuilding project, especially when you're building a ship that large on dry land. It's like being a Christian today, and you read your Bible, and you believe what the Scriptures say, and you give up all your Sundays to come to this place and hear a guy scream at you. And you know, you abstain from immorality and you don't lie and you try to trust God by faith and people think you're whacked out like Noah, that you're a lunatic like Noah. I mean, it's getting more and more that if you just believe what Christians believe and what the Bible says, you're just, you, you're weird. You're wrong. Four, Noah's obedience led to the salvation of a few. Consider if Noah hadn't built the ark he and his family would have perished, right? If he didn't build the ark, he was going to go down with the flood too. But he did build the ark and that saved he and his family, eight people from the judgment of God. 
you know, there's some important thing here. And it's to realize that if Noah hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here because we all came from Noah. We're all blood relatives of Noah. Not only that, we're all blood relatives of Adam and Eve, right? And we need to remember this. The world lies to us so frequently that we actually think there's more than one race. There's only one race. It's the human race. We all came from Adam and Eve. I'm sorry to tell you this. I'm your blood relative. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're African-American or Asian or Hispanic or whatever you are. We're blood. (laughs) We're blood. I'm family. Sorry. I'll be better when I get to heaven. But really, when somebody starts talking about their skin color and having preference or this or that, it's really a form of racism. And racism is to falsely claim there's more than one race. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. No one evolved. That comes from evolution. When the Bible is we're all equal because we're all blood relatives from the one race, the race of Adam and Eve, the family of Noah. We're not different. You evolved from slime, but I was created by God. No. And we need to just believe things like this. You know, when Jesus says things like the fields are white with harvest, do you ever kind of go out there and just go, I can't even see a grain of wheat. I mean, I see a lot of people, but they're not harvestable. They're not I swing the sickle of the gospel, but after all day, I look and there's nothing in the basket. You know, God's word says that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. And so I I tell people about Christ, I share the gospel with them and no one gets saved. Now, the author of Hebrews says five times, you know, today is the day of salvation, but no one wants to get saved today. It seems And I don't know about you, sometimes you can think, well, well, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing's wrong. Noah did everything right. And seven people besides himself entered into the ark. But that's okay. That's okay. You know, you may be some teacher and you may be in Sunday school and you're dealing with a bunch of little crawlers or whatever and uh, some of those sparkies or something that seem like they're all a little wound up. Um, they got too much sugar in them or something, but they're, they're, they're energetic, right? They're, they're wound. And you may be teaching them a Sunday school lesson and in your mind you're thinking, you know, I should tell them the gospel I did last week. I did it the week before. I did the week before. I did the week before. And you don't say, do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? Please do not do that. That's not what the scripture says. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent and you will be saved. Repent and believe and you will be saved. And you think, you know, should I tell them about Jesus dying on the cross for his sins, being buried and resurrected on the third day and tell them to repent and believe? And you think, well, I'll do it again. And you do. And there's some little tyke in there that repents and believes. And that one child might be the only child you ever have the privilege of leading to the Lord. But they might become, you know, another Chrysostom, the golden mouth. Or George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist that ever lived. 
or Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, that one person may have a huge impact on the world. You see, it's not our job to make sure certain quantities get saved. It's our job to build the ark and to tell everybody to get in and let God bring them in. To bring in the animals he wants, to bring in the people he wants, to tell them there is a Messiah, that judgment is coming. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter in through Christ and faith and you will be saved. And then we trust God. But we've got to live by faith. We've got to believe God. This is the instrument he has chosen. And, you know, we could, we could talk about so many instances of people who have come to Christ in this congregation when people just came to Christ from just a comment, from a word, from a little fragment of what someone said and it just stuck in their mind and that was what God used. And if that person didn't open their mouth, it wouldn't have happened. So you just be faithful to do what you're supposed to do and let God bring the flood. Fifth, Noah's obedience led to judgment of most. Notice it says, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. Noah's faith led to the judgment of most. The text says, Noah condemned the world. You might be thinking, how did that happen? How did he condemn the world? Well, three ways one noah's ark condemned them you know it's not like they didn't notice the ark it's not like it was hard to see you're cruising down the road it's like what is that let's go check it out and there's noah pounding in some pegs and he looks and sees you coming repent judgment is coming God is going to send a flood upon the earth. And you're thinking, whoa. Yes, the ark was just this huge symbol of the judgment to come. That couldn't be missed. It was gigantic. It'd be like living next to one of those huge cathedrals you see in Europe. You know, one of those huge gaudy ones. With all these statues of all these biblical characters and, and stained glass windows depicting the gospel and scriptures. The whole gospel just chiseled into the walls inside and out. And every day you walk by this cathedral and sometimes you stroll through it and you marvel at the artwork. And you marvel at the stained glass and, and you see all of this scripture etched in stone and you never believe and you die and perish in hell. The ark was like that. It was a huge physical emblem of the judgment to come. And by building that ark, he condemned the world. Secondly, Noah preached to them. When they came to look at the huge ark, he unloaded on them. Second Peter chapter two, verse five says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness because he preached righteousness. He preached against sin. He preached for obedience to God and he preached of the Messiah to come. And so they knew about the flood. They knew about salvation. They knew to get in the ark. They knew what to do, what not to do. He preached at them. And so not only did they see it, 
They heard it from him. And people hear it today. People hear it today. They hear the gospel on TV, on the radio, in churches, from street evangelists. And they don't want to enter into faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel, which gives life to some, becomes the condemnation of others. It is a realm of both life and death. Third, consider that Noah condemned the world by getting inside the ark. I mean, it's one thing to spend a hundred years building a huge ark. And it's another thing to get in there with all those animals. Think about it. What were his neighbors saying? Did you know that Noah went inside? Genesis said that he went inside and then seven days later, the flood came. Imagine what they were saying on day six. The guy's been in there for six days. I mean, there's all this honking and barking and trumpeting and hissing and cawing. And oh, man, it's just it's crazy. The guy's in there. What is he doing? Oh, you can imagine the smell. He's just sitting there. He's like being in this huge coffin with all those animals. Man, they've got lions in there and saber-toothed tigers and velociraptors. And he's in there with his family. And the guy is nuts. Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 26 and 27, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Though they saw the ark being built, though they heard Noah preach the gospel, though they saw him get into the ark and God closed the door and sit there for seven days, they didn't want to believe And as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, 8, their condemnation is just. When people see the truth, when they hear the truth, when they see Christians' lives transformed, I mean, you know, it's pretty radical what happens to people's lives when they come to Christ, isn't it? It is so radical. You know, I remember in seminary talking to seminary professors, hearing their testimony, and I just could not grasp that this really godly seminary professor was cruising, drinking beer with his buddies, picking up women when he he met his wife. That just didn't work for me. Okay? He was just nothing like that. He was so not like that. And his wife was just walking down the street and they were, you know, hassling her. Said, hey, can we go out? She goes, listen, if you want to see me, come to church on Sunday. So he told his buddies, I'm going. He went one time. He was so offended by what he heard that he got a Bible and said, I'm reading my Bible this week. And I'm going to show her why it's so ridiculous. And he came to Christ. (laughs) You know, you have little kids and you teach them from a very young age. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch the stove. Stay away from the stove. No, you slap them on the hand. No, ha, no, ha, no, ha. And then they get to be teenagers. Turn on the burner, stick their hand in the flame. Ow! Say, what are you doing? 
I mean, do you feel sympathy? No, you feel anger. Why? Because I told you, I told you, I told you, I told you. You saw me burn myself. Oh, you got to learn for yourself. You can't hear somebody else's words. You can't learn from wisdom. You've got to learn from experience, but you don't want to learn about hell from experience. You want to believe God. You want to believe his word and not experience it. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled Noah's Faith, Fear, Obedience, and Salvation, wrote this. 120 years preaching, no converts remaining. 120 years shipbuilding, yet no water to float it. 120 years warning people that God is about to destroy them, and yet no flood. Surely the good man's life is a failure. No doubt wise folks said of him, he's a good old man, but he is uncharitable. And has become an alarmist. Some style him a pessimist. Others say he's a bigot. Others again affect to deplore that the good man has made such a great mistake and is wasting his influence under a delusion. I hear fine gentlemen saying, do not Take notice of the old gentleman. No doubt he is very good man, but at the same time, he is only one and his views are very particular. He has gone on chopping this logic for 120 years and the world is not drowned yet. It's really too ridiculous. The wilder spirits meet him in the morning and they say, well, Father Noah, when is this flood coming? The country, would it be improved by a good soaking? You have raised our expectations so long that it ought to pour when it does come. You ought to have minded the old saying, never prophesy until you are sure. Thus, they would jest at the preacher of righteousness, but no one knew what he was at and was not silenced. All that he did was simply to repeat the warning and go on with his shipbuilding. God's time was coming, the storm was gathering, and before long the deluge would end the mirth of the godless, end quote. Noah commanded people to repent and they just wouldn't believe. He built a ship and they wouldn't believe. He entered into the ark. They wouldn't believe and so he condemned the world. Just as the present churches and the lives of Christians and the testimony of so many things to the gospel today will condemn the world. Six, Noah's obedience made him a heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Since Noah built the ark by faith, since he trusted the promises of God by faith, his faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. We need to keep this in view. You can be righteous before God after you are saved by faith and receive the righteousness of Christ when it's credited to your account. You first have to be right with God before you can live for God in a righteous way. You know, if you are a philanthropist and have great means and you help a lot of old ladies across the street, it counts for nothing before God. If you give tons to charity and help tons of people and medical research and whatever, it counts for nothing. If you support missions and churches out of guilt, but you don't love God and you don't know Christ, it counts for nothing. You must first come to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ so that you can receive from 
God, the righteousness of Christ. Then you can begin to live a life that is righteous before him, but not before. First salvation, then righteous living. That is why when we're talking to people in our office who have problems, we want to see if they know Christ. Why? Because if they don't know Christ, we can't sanctify them. We can't fix them. We can't help them obey God. If we think, yeah, you need to be sanctified as an unbeliever, it never works. Our text says that at the end of verse 7, that Noah became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. What is an heir? An heir is somebody when they die, they leave you all their stuff, hopefully. If it's good. Money, their possessions, you become an heir. You receive as an heir what is someone's, someone else's, right? Noah, by faith in God, received the righteousness of Christ by faith, just like Noah did, right? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, where he says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Where does that righteousness come from? Christ, who is perfect. That's why when you believe in Jesus Christ, even though your bank account is empty, Christ's righteousness fills it up. It's credited to you, imputed to you, given to you. And your sins are taken away and then you can be justified before God. And Paul goes on to explain how Abraham's faith was credited to his righteousness, just like Abel, just like Enoch, just like Noah. It's the only way. You got to receive it from somebody else. If you refuse to repent and believe, what's God going to do? Listen, he's only got one savior. It's Jesus. There's only one perfect, righteous, perfectly righteous person that can give you his righteousness. It's Christ. And there's only one way to receive it. It's by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you get the righteousness. If you don't, nothing you do appeals to God. And so if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, you know what? I'm not living like Noah. I'm not even close to living like Noah. I trust in myself. I trust in my cash. I trust in my car. I trust in my friends. I trust in worldly resources, the internet. Then you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can be justified by grace through faith and be an heir of his righteousness. Like Noah. Now, if you know Jesus as your savior then you need to live by faith. Right now, as uh, they come up to sing one last song, I want you to just bow your heads because we're gonna, I'm going to read a prayer from the Valley of the Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. This is called Faith and the World. So just, just make this prayer your prayer to God this morning. Oh Lord, the world is artful to entrap approaches in a fascinating guise, extends many gilded bait, presents many charming face. Let my face scan every painted trinket and escape every bewitching snare and a victory that overcomes all things. In my duties, give me firmness, energy, zeal, devotion to thy cause, courage in thy name, love as a working grace, and all commensurate with my trust. 
Let faith stride forth in giant power and love respond with energy in every act. I often mourn the absence of my beloved Lord whose smile makes earth a paradise and whose voice is the sweetest music, whose presence gives all grace strength. But my unbelief, I often kept him outside the door. Let faith give entrance that he may abide with me forever. Thy word is full of promises, flowers of sweet fragrance, fruit of refreshing flavor when cold by faith. May I be made rich in its riches, be strong in its power, be happy in its joy, abide in its sweetness, feast on its preciousness, draw vigor from its manna. Lord, increase my faith. Amen.